right, hello and welcome to Sitting with Jan Luca and a special edition from the archives as earlier this year we uh, sadly lost New Orleans R&B icon Lloyd Price who went to that great gig in the sky 88 years young he was and he was definitely the bridge between rhythm and blues and rock and roll and one of the lucid eyewitnesses in fact not only one of the lucid eyewitnesses but participants in uh, not only the birth of rhythm and blues but the birth of rock and roll uh, all of which created an instant generation gap that helped desegregate the deep south a decade before the official civil rights movement uh, lloyd price's massive hit in 1952 lordy miss claudy uh, set the world on fire and to this day remains one of the most covered songs in history my mantra is that if you follow any American black urban music from funk, jazz, hip-hop, house music, anything, um, if you trace it back, you will land in New Orleans, either at jazz, R&B, Mardi Gras, Indian chants, syncopate parade beats. You don't have to take my word for it. Lloyd Price is going to be telling you, coming right up, exactly the same thing. And he's going to be explaining why as well. Um, because he would know Lloyd Price was there. Um, so, Lee, well, you know, Lloyd Price ended up a long way from where he started. In, he started in a small town of Kenner, Louisiana, and uh, became, since having a massive hit over the uh, decades, he has become a boxing promoter, soul food titan, um, even a maker of bowling balls, as well as an R&B pioneer. Um, I spent an afternoon with Lloyd at his country mansion uh, when um, in upstate New York for a Mojo magazine article came out in February 2018 possibly his last ever interview um, but before we hear from Lloyd I'm going to quickly set up the scenario of the music scene post-World War II, just so you get an idea of the setting. Um, this was just before Lloyd recorded the record that set the nation on fire, uh, Lordy Miss Claudy, um, and um, because World War II had put an end to the big band era of swing, uh, you know, Benny Goodman, Count Basie, etc. Uh, World War Corp put an end to those big bands and ushered in an, an era of austerity, um, scale-down, low-key, sit-down era of bebop. Um, all the charts were full of novelty songs um, and those saccharine, sort of radio-friendly, touchy-feely ballads. During all this, the teenage son of an Italian immigrant in New Orleans called Cosimo Matassa opened up a tiny, and I mean really tiny, recording studio that recorded direct-to-disc, and he opened it up behind his father's appliance store in 1945. He called it J&M, and he started to record with a razor-sharp studio band known about town as The Clique. Then, in 1946, a gospel shouter called Roy Brown walked past the Waffle Irons into the back room and belted out, good rocking tonight. In under three minutes, Roy Brown reset the musical landscape. His blend of gospel, blues, and beefy urban rhythm 
backed by a razor-sharp, stripped-down and raw house band, is considered the first ever rhythm and blues song. That was good rocking tonight. While all this took off, a young Lloyd Price was working at his mother's sandwich shop in Kenner, Louisiana, just a few miles outside of New Orleans. I'm going to let Lloyd tell us in person about how he and New Orleans J&M Recording Studio not only became the root of everything we listen to today, but paved the way for rock and roll and civil rights and desegregation a decade before Martin Luther King. Well, I heard the news tonight here at sitting with jan luca and yeah roy brown that you know it sounds rather nice today doesn't it but at the time this was a black man in the segregated south from the uh in the mid 40s right singing about uh well you know slap and tickle for want of a better word right uh i'm gonna grab my baby by the hand tonight she'll know i'm a mighty mighty man Hmm. Well, what do you think that was about? <laughs> it also, that track also introduced the word rock into the vernacular, right? A, a long time before Alan Freed uh, came up with the term rock and roll, Roy Brown was uh, talk, singing about rocking. And uh, rocking, he did, not meant, uh, he did not mean a rocking chair. It was really scandalous. The church went nuts. The elder generation went bananas and the kids loved it they just couldn't get enough of it sparked off um the soundtrack for this new phenomenon called teenagers uh, that hadn't really existed so much beforehand this is like a new uh, what would advertisers call it demographic mm. uh, now lloyd price really was the last link really to a period before good rocking tonight uh, just before I let Lloyd Price in on this, um, I'm going to play a couple of um, versions of Lordy Miss Clawley, cool versions of it. Um, I'm going to start off because it was Larry Williams's birthday uh, a few days ago on the 10th. And Larry Williams was um, Lloyd Price's driver, actually. <laughs> he then became a, quite a big star 
himself um and he was uh, he was what say on the fringes of the legal uh, of legalities he was uh, he was a criminal as well as he was a very talented uh, R&B singer. Um, he started off as Lloyd Price's driver and wor- working for Lloyd Price in one capacity or another, and uh, then became a hotshot himself, as well as a drug dealer, as well as a pimp, as well as uh, many uh, other nefarious activities. He was found dead at 44 with a gunshot wound to the head, possibly self-inflicted. That was what is on the uh, death certificate. It's been suggested that he was murdered because of his, uh, either his, one of, his rackets or drug dealings, etc. But anyway, he left behind great music. So here is some of Larry Williams singing Lordy Miss Claudia. I went over to Lloyd Price's house uh, for a Mojo magazine article. You can probably find it uh, online. 2017 is is when it came out. Um, and he had done a, a show at um, in New York City. And he lives in a very, very large country pile. And um, so... What happened was how he got discovered. Lloyd Price was lives from was from a small town just outside of New Orleans, about seven or eight miles, called Kenner, Louisiana. Tiny little place. His parents had a uh, like a fish fry uh, place that um, Lloyd calls a sandwich shop. And um, Dave Bartholomew, who produced most of anything was performed in New Orleans, especially on specialty records. But all these amazing rhythm and blues uh, um, songs that came out in the post-war period were pretty much all produced by Dave Bartholomew, who was a trumpet player and a band leader, as well as a record producer, and also produced Fats Domino, discovered and produced Fats Domino. It's a very important man in the history of rock and roll and R&B and just about anything that we have listened to in the last uh, few decades. Um, so he's in Kenan Luinian and he goes into Lloyd Price's mother's sandwich shop for a sandwich. And Lloyd Price is sort of bashing out, playing around on the piano. And uh, I think I'll let Lloyd Price take take the story from here on in. And Dave Bartholomew came in. <clears throat> and Lord and Miss Claudia was in my head. You know, I had a little girl called Nellie Dukes, who was my girlfriend, Instead of singing Nellie Dukes, uh, uh, singing about Nellie, I chose uh, to sing about Lordy Miss Claudy. That was Nellie in my mind. Oh, now, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy Miss Claudy. The Miss Claudy was Nellie. Oh, okay. And that was my blues, my blues feeling because she had quit me. And so Dave Bartholomew one day came into the shop for a sandwich. 
heard me playing that. And he told me, he said, listen, play that little song for me again, just like that. I played it for him. He said, that could be a hit. I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, there's a guy coming here from California, want to record young black artists, and you might be his first one. I played it for him again. He said, when the guy come here, I want you to play it for him. Sure enough, Art Roop came down. I played it for him. He and his wife, Lee Roop, said, oh, this is going to be a smash. I had no idea, no clue what they were talking about. They invited me down to J&M Music Cosmos, and the day I went down there, I didn't even have the bus fare because I lived in Kenner. It cost 11 cents to go down there. The bus driver let me go free and got me a transfer on a streetcar to go down to North Rampart Street. Fats Domino walked into the studio. And Dave Bartholomew said, Fats, since he was his producer, he said, Fats, set your big butt down over there on that piano, and I want you to play on this record. So he played this beautiful introduction, rolling the piano. And I was scared to death. Oh, now, Lordy, 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 Miss Claudia. That became the beginning of the freedom of listening to music, both socially and, and, and integratedly. I kept repeating the same verse. I didn't know anything about, you know, beginning, middles, and ending. Dave said, you got to have, verses got to be different. So I sung about things I knew. Lordy, Lordy, Miss Carter, you sure look good to me. I'm going to tell my mama, you're wheeling and you're rocking just as fine as you can be. All of this was the truth. So I just picked things out of my head that I knew. He says, okay, three times, Fats Domino gonna play the music again, Lee Allen is gonna play the solo, and then you sing it twice out. But do not repeat the verses. That's how it got recorded. Made it up in the studio with Tom Jones, the Beatles, Paul McCartney, you name them, 168 times it's been re-recorded. Lord and Miss Claudia, from that being such a big record, started uh, RCA and General Electric and Frigidaire oh, yeah. to build more jukeboxes. It was truly rock and roll. C.J. McLenn played a lick on the guitar. A single string lick that had never ever happened before. Guitars up to that point was only accompaniments. They would just play rhythm. CJ played go don't in the backbeat. Boom, you know, right in the middle of that. So that was really rock and roll. You can rock on it. First time it ever happened. And then Earl Palmer back there with that backbeat and he played what they call six eight, a six eight shuffle on the drum. With the foot on the one. Boom. So that was really rock.
And that's why we believe that Laudamus Claudia was what they call rock and roll, started this new craze of music with people dancing to rock and roll. It was easier for all the young kids to get into that instead of learning how to jitty bug and throw people over the head or boogie woogie. It was easier for them to try to rock in the j- than to do the boogie woogie because you had to have some kind of talent to do yeah. what these people did, throwing each other over the edge, swinging through their legs. The new music, they didn't have to do that. They just had to stand still and rock. Who wouldn't pat their foot to fat stomach? Well, now. Laudamus Claudia was out three years before Rosa Parks sat on the bus and 10 years before Martin Luther King marched in 1963. That had segregated earlier in the 50s with this rock, this new music. Oh, music was the cause of all of it. My brother and I was riding home with my father. I think he turned the radio on in the truck when the record was halfway through. And he said, Lord praise, Laudamus Claudia. So my brother said, is that you? I said, I don't know. I, I didn't hear no playback. And I didn't tell anybody I had made a record until that day. Because, you know, Art Root had given me $50. I want to keep that a secret. <laughs> so then he played it again. The generations had started to change. They were not listening to their parents. They was not going with that evangelist. The kids wanted to break away from that. When Lord was in the 50s, it was the Chitlin Circuit. But it was theaters. It was theaters. Uh-huh. When the white kids start to come, they start calling them spectators. And they start booking the armors because instead of drawing eight or 900 people, I would draw thousands of people. They had to get bigger venues than the Chitlin theaters. Okay. So we start playing the Army, the Army base armories. As the months went by, the white kids start listening to black radio. And it's... They really got into this music. The kids would be dancing. You just think about a rope in the middle, you know, waist high. They would take that down. Well, I tried to call you, baby, but someone was on the line. You know I tried to call, baby, but someone was on the line. Well, don't say it was Susie, because Susie ain't giving a dime. We talked a lot about segregation and how New Orleans rhythm and blues helped to desegregate the uh, dance halls, something that would eventually uh, lead up to the official uh, civil rights movement in the next uh, decade. Lloyd's shows teenagers would rip down the dividing chains and start dancing and uh, you know dancing feet overpowered wagging fingers. (laughs) Anyway 
if I included all this, uh, we would be listening for the next three hours. Uh, so I can't. I am. Um, hey, listen, look out for part two of this story. And if you really are interested, uh, please, co- you can contact me at Sitting with GT on Instagram or subscribe. Why don't you subscribe to the Sitting with Gianluca uh, page at Instagram? Um, so, but any in any event, but for the purposes of now, we'll stick to the music as told uh, from the man who made it. The great Lloyd Price. personality made up on the spot kind of because i was on my way to pittsburgh to do a job and you know we didn't fly a lot so i was driving to pittsburgh from new york and i got a call i had a phone big old phone made maybe it weighed 20 pounds but larry newton from abc he was the general manager of the company said listen you're going to australia in a few days we don't have a record in the can. I would never record a record in the can. I always had to have a fresh idea when I went to the studio. You know, to have some kind of shot that I'm right. In the can, I ain't never believed that in the can was a good deal. So I never record nothing for the can. I had to record and knowing the songs coming out in the next week, a month or so. So he said, okay, I said, when I get from Pittsburgh, I will come and get Don Costa. I will get with Don Costa, who was my arranger, and I'll have a song. I was thinking about personality. Now, I had been thinking about that a few months because everything has a personality. Walks with personality, it talks with personality, it smiles. All I had to do was find a way to make that a song. So I just said, whoa, 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 and over. I tried to prove my love to you. That's all I had to come up with. That would took about 15 minutes. Oh, because you walk with personality. Talk with personality. Smile with personality. Charm with personality. Love with personality. And plus you got a great big heart. So over, over and over. And over. She walks by. The mean folks get in gold. Can't help it. Girl can't help it. If she Am I right in assuming, or did I get it right or wrong in any way? Did you get Little Richard recorded? No, you're right. You're right. When I was in Macon, Georgia, just before I went in the Army, Little Richard said, I want to be like you. You know, I had never seen nobody like Richard. He had this high pompadour, and he had on a green suit, I think with a red necktie, white shoes. He just was an outstanding-looking person in Macon, Georgia, and he jumped up on the piano during intermission playing that same kind of stuff, by golly. Oh, he, uh, he came a, up to you backstage or at the show? No, he, he, no, the band that took an intermission. And he jumped up on the stage and started banging on the piano. Oh, he was the band that was playing? He was not a band, no. Oh. He was just Little Richard on the piano. 
So I came out to see what was so exciting. He was, the people was very excited to see him. It was in his hometown and they all knew about him and I didn't. He said, I want to be like you. What could I do? So my little brother, Leo, took his address and all that stuff so we could find him. So when I got drafted in the Army, this was months later, way in 1954, when Art Root, I called, my mother told me that I should try to call Art Root in California because they didn't have any records out. Was there any way I could record in Tokyo? There was no way to do it. Everything bummed out. There's no studio. What musicians would I use in Tokyo? So I called Art Root and told him, what the conditions were there. So he said, well, we need to have another Lloyd Price or Lord and Miss Claudia. Do you know of anybody like that? Did you see if anybody like that on the road before you got drafted? And what came to mind was this kid I'd seen in Georgia, Little Richard. And I told him, I said, there's a guy in, in Georgia calls himself Little Richard. I noticed the people liked his music as much as they like mine. And he just was playing it by himself on the piano. So he said, how can we find him? I said, I don't know, but my little brother, Leo, probably got an address. So when he found him, he was on the road with Johnny Otis. Johnny Otis had hand drive, and little Richard was on the road with Lil Esther and Johnny Otis. And so that's how they found him. He sent Bumps Blackwell to New Orleans in 1955 to record Richard at Cosmo Studio. And the rest of it is history. When I got out of the Army in 55, Lil Richard had swept every town clean. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> The girl can't help it, but she's in love with me. She can't help it, the girl can't help it. Now that band, if I, if I remember right, this is something that Alan, Alan Toussaint told me. The band used to call themselves, or actually musicians used to refer to them as the clique. So when you went in, I mean, would they just get it straight away? Yeah, they would get it right away. You wouldn't? Would you run through anything? Or? Yeah, we'd run through it. I played down on the piano, and then at that time, I had a guy called Salvador Doucette who played the piano for me. Sal would come in and play, and he'll give them the chords. And then Dave took over. Okay. You know, and then if Fats Domino came, Dave would always call Fats to come in and set in on the sessions. Oh, all right. So yeah. it wasn't just those two that. Uh, um, no. Uh, so how long would that take? I mean, how many? How long would that Very take? Very short. It did because we had to do three or four songs in that three-hour set. Uh huh. And believe it or not, they didn't get double scale. They got thirty-five dollars for the three hours. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah. the scale. They probably got double. Yeah, yeah. The Rangers' fees was double. Um, but how was David Bartholomew? To work with how did he run the show dave was good he was he was really a leader oh he wasn't uh, hard on people uh, yes he was yes he was he said damn it man this is as simple as a frog sitting on a log falling off backwards easy <laughs> and it was mostly little whole, whole notes you know you might have had a trumpet seldom you had a trombone it was mostly all reeds all the time and they played what we call whole whole notes because we depend on the backbeat and the rhythm section, those triplets, because that was the drive, the drive. And then CJ came up with all these different licks on the guitar. You know, he would find that single lick to play, and that turned it into really be something.
did you not not discover Wilson Pickett? But did you not turn him into a solo artist? I did, and did, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, discovered him, because I went up to Flint, Michigan, to hear Bill Doggett, and he was a singer with Bill Doggett, and I couldn't believe this kid was not making records, but it had been with some group, so I sent Robert Bateman into the studio. Robert was a producer at Motown. He produced Police Mr. Postmaster by the Martha, not the Vandellas, the Marvelettes. And he produced Wilson Pickett. If You Need Me, his first record. Million copies off a demo. And we had Double L Records. That was the first time Double L. Well, I said, when I heard Wilson sing of Bill Doggett, I just knew this kid was talent. Well, you you were at, you saw it? You yeah. You perform, right? I you saw him perform. Flint. I went up to hear Bill Doggett in Honky Tonk. Mm -hmm. I was in Detroit, so I heard he was in Flint. I went up there. The surprise was Wilson Pickett. When he started singing, I had Robert Bateman to do the demo. Yeah. And uh, Mary Wells' husband, uh, I can't think of his name now, uh, yeah, yeah. They did the demo, brought it to me to New York. Immediately, I took it to ABC, and they laughed at me. Say, you gonna put this thing out? What? Can't under People have always said, darling, how much you love me. If you need me, I said, this is a hit. And they said, no. Well, I called Al Bennett, who had Liberty Records. He had Julie London at the time, David Seville and the Chipmunks, and uh, Johnny Rivers, and Willie Nelson completely different from what we do. So I convinced Al to put the record out. And the rest of it is here. have always said, darling, that I didn't mean you no good. And you would leave me someday. But way deep down in my heart, I know that I've done the best I could. That's why I know that one of these days, it won't be long, you'll come walking through that same door. And I can imagine in my mind, that these are the words you'll be saying. No, it, but he was not a nice person. Oh. But he, I thought he was a, just a dynamic talent. Oh, was he not easy to work with? No, no, well, no. Well, it's like a guy working on a garbage truck and he hit Lotto for half a billion dollars. Oh, too much, too soon. Too much, too soon, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just completely went to his head. So in the studio, would he get it right first time? he get it right. He was dedicated to his craft. Okay. And he could do it. It was no question about his talent. He was almost like Sam Cooke, who was not a dyn I'm Marvin Gaye. Not dynamic entertainers, but their voice. They were so powerful with their singing. And that kind of carried him on. Oh, okay. So purely on the voice. He didn't maybe have the... So he wasn't magnetic. No. I think of it. No, no. Oh. Let, let me just give it. He was not a James Brown. No matter what the people say. If you need me, I'll be home. 
All right. So um, I'm going to sort of move on to a, a slightly different chapter of Lloyd Price's career. He's quite candid about this. He had the he was a he was an entrepreneur and a bit of a hustler. Uh, he he was a boxing promoter for a while. Promoted that Muhammad Ali's Rumble in the Jungle and Thriller in Manila with Don King. And um, he worked constri- He had a construction company for a while. He was a food magnet for a while. If you want Lordy Miss Claudy cupcakes, you can do that. Um, his name is on bowling balls. So if you want a Lloyd Price bowling ball, you can do that. He really put it out there. But one of the things that he did is that he was quite into integration. And he had a, um, a, a club on Broadway in New York City um, called the Turntable Club, which he, according to him, was the first uh, sort of integrated club. He's going to explain that in a second anyway. And um, there were, at the time, you know, um, the record business, especially the independent record business, was a little bit... Oh, say on the fringes of legality, and there were some rather interesting uh, characters in the um, this sort of re- business, especially in nightclubs and independent record labels. Morris Levy Roulette Records was particularly notorious for uh, just being an outright gangster, as a matter of fact. So anyway, uh, Lloyd Price opens uh, the Turntable Club, um, which used to be one of Morris Levy's clubs. Um, and uh, th- and this is what happened. His long-term business partner, Harold Logan, well, he's found dead in the upstairs office with two bullets in his head. Ouch. So uh, here's Lloyd Price going to tell us a little bit about that. So he said that there was the first integrated what, club? For the, the youth, for the youth. Remember... Oh. Jazz, young kids didn't go, just very few. Mm. Jazz was, you know, you know, had a bad reputation, you know, for drugs and all that stuff. So kids didn't go. That was strictly for adults and mm. people who got high and stuff like that. Smoke weed and that was that that exactly what that was. Jazz. Yeah. Okay. I changed that to be young kids. And as I was changing it, the disco came in. You know, and uh so uh-huh. we managed to stay there four years. And then I got out because they, my partner got killed in the office, Logan. Oh, what yeah. happened there? I have no idea. I was going to be the first guy to go on television with his own, first black guy to go on television with his own show from Broadway. We had the press conference like tonight. The next morning they found my partner, Logan, with two bullets in the head in the office. Instead of, I was told that night, Larry Spangler, who was a producer that was producing Merv Griffin, the Merv Griffin show, he was going to produce my show. Wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was about, I was going to be on TV every week from the turntable. To me, that would have made a lot more sense. And, you know, that just would have built my credibility so much. <clears throat> Only black was on TV at that time was Ed Sullivan. If you didn't go on Ed Sullivan, you know, you... You was just not nobody. So I had been on Ed Sullivan a couple of times. Ray Block and his orchestra was rehearsing all the Ed Sullivan shows in my club. So I had a very good relationship on Broadway. And so Larry Spangler saw that as being something real, that I should be on TV with the youth, Young Adult. I had this magazine called Young Adults, and then I had Crawdaddy Magazine. So I was in Young Business. 
you oh, know. Cruel Daddy magazine. Yeah. Okay. And we was gonna build with Larry Spangler. We was gonna build a turntable in Washington D.C., Richmond, Birmingham, all for young adults. The young adults, the young black and whites, they want to mix. They want to dance to this music. We brought rock and roll to Broadway. Oh, interesting. In the yeah. turntable. And my interest with doing that too was why did all the black cats had to work at the Apollo Theater? Yeah. I kind of had a problem with that because it wasn't getting paid probably. probably and I said, well, you know what, why all the black cats got to stay across 110th Street? Why can't they come downtown? But you never, they still haven't got to the bottom of why, why he got killed upstairs. No, 49 years now. Uh, I was told that um, we used to get phone calls. We don't want no niggas on Broadway and hang up. Huh? We was getting those kind of calls. The secretary was getting those kind of calls. The week that Logan got killed was the week that I had just came back from California with Larry Spangler. I was told before I left California, when my feet hit the ground in New York, they was going to kill me at LaGuardia. I say, for what? I'm a songwriter. Why would they kill me? They don't want no black asses on Broadway. I said, well, I guess I'm one to go because we're going to do this TV show. I ain't never done anything to anybody. Larry Spangler told me the night of the press conference, we had 378 reporters jammed in the turntable. He said, your name going to be in every paper around the world. Most of these people are from Associated Press. Your name going to be on every paper in the world tomorrow. Instead of that, it was Logan's name. Hey. Two bullets in the head. Oh, wow. And the New York Times on down. And you were hands-on in that club. like that. You actually, oh, I was there. You were there every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't gone to sleep. I guess I, I was so excited about the press conference. Me and my girlfriend was at the hotel a couple of blocks away, right across from the Carnegie Deli. And my family, my mother, my father, my sisters, they all was at my house. So I couldn't sleep there. I had to sleep in the hotel. But we sat up damn near all night, just so happy with what's going to gonna be the future. But it never turned out to be. When Logan got killed, everybody ran away. Oh, wow. Is, yeah. that, is that when you, you, you took a pause from the music business after that, correct? I did. Was that why? I did. Well, that's one of the reasons why I closed the club. Because I moved out of New York to Philadelphia, and I start not going down one-way streets. I always want to face the traffic. You know, they, you, I got to tell you, you know, they told me my name was on a bullet. Oh, wait, so you go, you always would drive facing the traffic? That's right. That? That's right. Why was that? So I could see what's coming. Oh, that's what I thought. And, you know, and I'm in the mirror driving my car. Instead <clears throat> of me watching the dashboard, I'm watching the mirror. Because that was real. They killed Logan. So this was no longer a joke to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? And I mean, so <laughs> I moved out of town and later moved to Africa. When he got shot in the office, he was playing my demo of Turntable Records. Oh, wait, our wait. first record on the label from the club. Sorry, uh, I'm going to ask you to, when who was playing what now? Logan. Yeah. The morning he got killed. He was somebody he knew very well. He was, he was playing my new demo on Turntable Records, oh. my new album. Oh. That was still spinning when I had to go up and identify him for the police. That record was still being played. You know, just the screeching of it. What was the name of the record? 
bad conditions. Okay. We're living in Wow, <laughs> there you have it, from the man that has been there, done that, and ended up a long way from where he started, in a big country pile, well into his 80s in upstate New York. Well, along the way, he recorded uh, the music that changed history, and, um, and you know, was a soundtrack of the teenage revolution that uh, ushered in the civil rights era. One of the last contributors uh, to uh, not just rock and roll, but the but rhythm and blues. And, um, yeah, just about any black urban music, as I keep saying, all music that's influenced by black urban music can be traced back to that tiny little studio in New Orleans, J&M, out of which Lloyd Price came. So anyway, I want to thank you for listening uh, to this tribute to such a, a really important and fascinating, as well as an eyewitness of history. He was a maker of history. Um, if you want to uh, find out a little bit more about what we talked about, you can uh, go to the Mojo article if you want. It's issue uh, 291 from February 2018. And if you want to keep up to date with what's coming on Sitting with Gianluca, please subscribe to the Sitting with Gianluca Instagram page. Uh, or get in touch with me if you want through the same page, Sitting with GT. I am going to leave the last word to Lloyd. Um, you know, when you converse with accomplished people uh, in their winter years, they're often really candid. You know, they've got nothing left to prove. They've got nothing to sell um, and um, like that. So, you know, Lloyd um, and his longtime business partner, Harold Logan, also came from an era where music makers and music impresarios had the uh, hustle and game. And Lloyd told me something that he uh, has never told anyone before that best illustrates that and uh, explains why uh, his business partner, Harold Logan, um, gets a co-writing credit on many of his songs. When I got out of the army, I was broke. I did not want to go back to Kenner. And I went to West Virginia, and Logan just threw me a, ba a bag with money in it at 15000 okay. He told me never, I didn't count it. He said, never take a bag from anybody of money that you don't count the money, because he was a number man. And that's why his name was on every one of my records. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a guy, nobody had ever given me nothing. He gave me 15 grand and a new Eldorado Cadillac. Oh, he gave you a bag of money as soon as you came out. 15,000. You could buy a new Cadillac for 4,500. Oh, how cool. Oh, so he didn't write. He didn't nothing. write those He wrote songs. nothing. Oh, nothing. but that was your way of. I put his name on everything. I really liked him. He was my man. Here come the 